You're listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sengraven. Um, so, yeah, today is the first Sunday in Lent. I don't, I guess I usually stand up here. Today's the first Sunday in Lent. Lent is a 40-day season of prayer, fasting, and giving, like Dave said just a few minutes ago. It begins on Ash Wednesday with the reminder, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Uh, Ash Wednesday was this past Wednesday. And it ends on Holy Thursday. That's the Thursday before Good Friday. And um, it's the season of Lent is modeled after Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, uh, during which he prayed and fasted, and then, of course, faced and overcame Satan's temptations. And so during Lent, the church is called to remember Christ's willingness to give up everything for the church um, and to face the trials and temptations of um, life in a fallen world and to overcome those um, through his own will, through his own word, through his death, and through his resurrection. And so uh, the church traditionally um, remembers or celebrates the season of Lent uh, by participating in these same sorts of things, prayer, fasting of different types. Um, I always know Lent is coming up because all the fast food restaurants start advertising their fish sandwiches uh, because the Catholic Church doesn't eat uh, other types of meat during Lent. Um, and then, uh, and then a, an important part of that is not just not participating in things ourselves, but using whatever excess we have to give to those who are in need. Because, of course, Christ doesn't just just uh, withhold good things from himself because he likes to suffer. He does it for our sake. So Lent should always be for the sake of others. Um, But important reminder, Lent does not include Sundays. So on Sundays, we do, yes, yay, Um, because even though we're remembering Jesus' time in the wilderness before his death and resurrection, we, of course, live in the time after his resurrection, and Sunday is always a resurrection day. It's always a feast day, Um, and so you don't fast on a feast day. Um, So uh, during the next 40-some days, we can... uh, remember in various ways Christ's uh, suffering and his willingness to give up all things, but on Sundays we can remember his victory over all things. Our scripture for today is from Genesis 2, 15 to 17 and 3, 1 to 7. Uh, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. How many of you are ever tempted at times? How many of you were just tempted right now to lie about the fact that you're tempted sometimes? It's kind of a trick question. Because, of course, all of us are tempted pretty much on a daily basis, aren't we? By something? As one person put it in a prayer, Lord, lead me not into temptation. I can find that all by myself. Isn't that true? Of course, as Christina said, today is the first Sunday of Lent, Ash Wednesday being this past week. I'm not sure if anybody actually got ashes on their heads this week because there was, you know, this crazy blizzard. Um, But Lent is this great time of preparation for Holy Week, for Easter. And even in the early church I was reading about, a lot of times the church would join the catechumens, the people being catechized and getting ready for their baptisms on the great Easter vigil. So this this is a really, really important time of preparing our hearts Um, prayer, fasting, giving, all those things are wonderful things for for preparing our hearts. But I also think that examining our lives is an important part, uh, an important thing that we do during Lent as well. Looking at our lives and saying, hey, where am I being tempted? Where am I getting tripped up? Where am I sinning? And how do I turn towards a a definite pursuit of holiness in my life again? Um, some of you may be like Dee and I are paying attention to this revival going on down in Kentucky. How many of you have been watching this a little bit? I've certainly been fascinated by it and was listening. I listened to the sermon that was preached at the chapel there and just pretty ordinary stuff, but God's doing something down there and it's remarkable. But one of the main things that has marked this revival at Asbury is just a gut-wrenching confession of sin repentance and heartfelt sorrow for sin and turning from that and and pursuing holiness. And if you look back at all the great moves of the Lord, all the great revivals, that's a staple of almost all of them. Just taking sin really seriously, confessing sin and, and turning from it and towards holiness. When the Holy Spirit moves on his people, one of the first thing he does is he convicts them of sin. And as Life Church, we want to join with Asbury. We want to join with wherever God is moving. We want to be a part of that. And so this Lent, we really want to prepare our hearts for Easter, but we also just want to move generally towards what the Lord is doing and move towards a position that says, God, we take our sins seriously. Holiness is a big deal to us, too. And of course, to do that, we have to understand how to handle temptation, how to, how to overcome it. And of course, as I've already mentioned, temptation is uh, not just a one-time thing. It's a lifelong thing. This is something you're going to deal with for the rest of your life. So you could easily say, well, Pastor Dave, if we're going to be tempted for the rest of our lives, and occasionally we're going to slip up in sin, is temptation and sin really that big of a deal? I mean, if we can't get completely free from it, what's the big deal after all? Is it really that big of a deal to God? And the answer is absolutely it's a huge deal to God. It's a massive deal to God, and we need only look at what it costs God to pay for our sin. He gave the life of his own son. That's how serious he is about our sin. That's what it cost him to invite us back into his family. So yes, God is very, very serious about our temptation and how we handle it and our sin. But also, we're told in James chapter 1, verse 15, a simple and helpful formula that always holds true. And this is it. It says, temptation brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death. Sin brings forth death of some sort. 
maybe not physical death, but every time we sin, we invite just a little bit more of death into our lives. We become less and less like the radiant, marvelous, God-like creatures that God meant us to be. We become more of these smudgy, kind of ghost-like creatures that the enemy wants us to be. So yes, you know, turning from temptation, how we respond to temptation and how we overcome it is a life and death issue for us. It's really, really important. And I want you to know right out front, it's also possible As we sang about today, it's also possible to overcome temptation. Just because you're tempted the rest of your life does not mean you have to give in to it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. He said, temptations, of course, cannot be avoided, but because we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, there's no need that we should let them nest in our hair. I think that's a good point. That's the big idea for today. You're going to be tempted, yes, for sure, the rest of your life, absolutely, but you don't need to give in to it. You can overcome temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the indwelling Christ. And that's what we're going to look at here today. So all of our texts, with the exception of the Psalms text, all the texts for the lectionary this week are really about temptation and how we can overcome it. And so we're going to be looking at three of them sort of together, but the main text from Genesis that uh, Paul read. And in our text today from Genesis, we're looking at the four T's of temptation. We're looking at the tempter, because we get an introduction to him, his tools for temptation, the tumble into sin, and the triumph. So the tempter, his tools, the tumble, and the triumph over temptation. So here we go. First of all, the tempter. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. So here's the main idea. Lots of things we could say about Satan or the tempter who fills this serpent, comes to Eve and and then Adam. But the main thing that you need to understand and know about Satan is that he's crafty. He's very, very smart. Um, How many of you like far side jokes or have liked far side jokes in the past? I definitely was a fan of far side jokes. Um, I like Gary Larson. And every now and then he has a joke about the devil or hell and, you know, little caption, even the coffee's cold. They thought of everything, you know, kind of thing. Um, but, but if you look at the devil in all the far side jokes, he's usually this fat, nonchalant, kind of lazy, sitting on the couch, eating potato chips, kind of, I'll get around to tempting people or torturing them if I have time, kind of thing, like giving it a half effort kind of devil. That is not the picture of the devil that we get in the scriptures, No, the devil is throwing everything he has at you. Um, I like to think of it a lot like fishing. And of course you say, Pastor Dave, everything to you is like fishing. I'm sorry, your pastor likes fishing. So um, I have asked a a tempting expert to talk with us today. That's my daughter, Jada. You understand that fishing is all about temptation, right? Um, You're trying to present something to the fish that looks like real food, but it isn't. Or maybe if there is some real food there, there's also a hook there that they can't see. And so you're tricking them, you're tempting them, and trying to figure it out. And Jada has actually um, outfished me a couple times, even in tournaments this past year. So I have to admit, she's become a very good tempter of walleyes. This is her tackle box, okay? She's very serious. She's got lots of tricks in this giant tackle box. It's almost bigger than her dad's, I would say. Um, but Jada, when you go out fishing, would you say that you, you know, try one thing and then if that thing doesn't work, you just go home? No. So 
So what do you do? Like how many things would you maybe try on a, on a given day fishing if, if several things weren't working? Um, many different baits probably. If nothing's working, everything in my tackle box. Everything. So you, try, you just keep throwing different things at them. It's not, the, it's not that the fish aren't biting. It's just that there's something else that I need to use to tempt them, right? So could you, could you maybe show us a couple of your favorites? So Jada's out there, and she's thinking through the conditions. She's thinking through the clarity of the water. She's thinking through all sorts of things. And this is what the enemy does for you, by the way. He looks at your life. He looks at your situation. He looks at the scenarios that you're in, and he says, well, how about this? How about this little, this little uh, minnow that's got these little reflective things in it, and it's got a little wiggly tail? How about this? Come take a little bite of this. It practically looks exactly like the real thing. And a lot of times this will work, doesn't it? You know, sometimes you got to reel it fast. Sometimes a little slower is going to work. But whatever it is, Jada's thinking through all the different tactics. That's one of her favorites. It's called a mimic minnow. It looks just like the real thing. Now, if that doesn't work, she doesn't just quit and give up for the day. She says, okay, you don't want that? Well, I've got something else in here. What about, uh, oh boy, we've got a hook in something already. What about this? What about this shiny little uh, skirt thing? You know, I, my, I use these a lot. My friends make fun of me for these, but these are called hot skirts. Now, what a sexy name for a fishing lure. <laughs> hot skirts, jigs, right? And I think the fish love them. They're, they're filled with like little, little reflective little tinsel things. Like, who wouldn't want to bite that? It just looks amazing. And so, you, you know, maybe if the, if the first thing doesn't work, you throw this at them. What do you think about this? How about you just come take a taste of this? I mean, just look at it. It's just mesmerizing to them. And that's what the enemy's doing to you. He's saying, oh, that first thing didn't work? Oh, I'm not worried about that. How about this? Maybe this. Maybe this will get him. This thing's got rattles in it. Maybe you're just having a really bad day, and he knows the situation. He knows just the right conditions that rattles are going to work for you. You know, uh, in recent years, uh, fishermen have figured out that you don't have to even have fish be hungry. You can just make them mad and get them to bite. And I think that's really unfair. They're not trying to eat because they're hungry. You're just trying to tick them off. What if the enemy knows that about you too? What if he says, if I just make them mad, then they'll bite. If I just get them down and depressed, then they'll give in. Then they'll be hooked. And all the while, what you don't see under this attractive little pink and white little perch-flavored thing with these reflective eyes, there's six hooks waiting to take advantage, waiting to grab you. Or maybe it's this, something so subtle as just a little fluke-tail minnow. Jay just caught a lot of fish on these. Sometimes it's a, a subtle little thing. It's not, it's not the big, flashy, noisy kinds of sins that always get lots of attention. Sometimes it's the really subtle things. These are the only things that can get bites some days. When the water's really clear, the conditions are tough, the fish are really wary of, of things. Sometimes you need something that looks exactly like the real thing. And that's the only thing you can get a bite on. And sometimes the enemy does that with you. He's very subtle. He comes in undetected. He gets you to bite on something like greed or something like um, just gossip, something you almost can't even detect. The point is this, friends. The enemy is not stupid. He's crafty. He's diligent. He's patient. He's like a good fisherman. He's trying everything he has. He's an expert in human temptation. Thank you, Jada. I'm sure there will be people who have questions for you after the service. I know I would. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober and vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How sober are you? That's part of the point of this sermon is just sobering up. 
Like you have a real enemy who's really trying to deceive you, who's really trying to destroy you. John 10, 9 says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That is his intent 100% all the time. So the first step in overcoming temptation is believing that he's real, but also that he intends to trick you, that he's crafty. He's not stupid about it. He knows you. He watches you. He studies your patterns and that he intends to destroy you. So that's the tempter. That's a little short introduction to the tempter. But let's look at his tools. We know the enemy's not throwing real fishing lures at you because you're not a fish. But you have things that you're tempted by, right? We've already been over this. And he pays attention to those things. He watches those things. What are those tools that he uses? What are those things at his disposal? Well, first of all, questions. According to verse 1, he uses questions specifically about what God has said. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And maybe you've heard that recently, right? But that's definitely one of his things. Oh, come on. Did God really say you can't do that? Did God really say this was going to bring destruction and death into your life? Did God? Isn't that a little archaic? Isn't that a little outdated? Can you really trust that? Did God really say? He gets you to doubt what God has said. That's one of his main tools. He asks you questions, specifically doubting the word. And this is why it's so important for us to know our Bibles. Jesus demonstrates this perfectly in the wilderness. He constantly comes back at the enemy with Scripture. Such a a knowledge of Scripture that he can constantly refute the enemy's tactics with Scripture. So you can say, yes, Satan. As a matter of fact, God did say. God did say that. So no, I'm not biting on that lure. So he gets you asked questions specifically about what God has said. After a while, then the seeds of doubt grow, and the enemy moves on to the next tool, lies. He just outright lies about what God has said. Look at what the woman says back. She says, um, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And then verse 4, he comes with the big guns. He says, you will not surely die. Wait a second. That was a bold-faced lie. That was actually the biggest lie that's ever been told in the history of lies. Because what, in fact, happened after that? When they sinned, everything began to die. And every living thing from that point on has died. You will not surely die was a huge lie. John 8, 44 says the enemy is a liar. And, his, and lying is his native language. He's called the father of lies. He's so, so good at making a lie sound like the truth. You ever know somebody like that? It's like, wow, how did you make that lie sound so sincere, so much like the truth? It's incredible how he does it. You know, he'll come to you and he'll say to you, oh, come on, it's no big deal. No one will ever know. You ever heard that lie? It's a lie every time, Right? Because, of course, you know, the enemy knows, God knows, three people already know no matter what. And he's planning to use it against you, by the way. It's never no one will ever know. He comes to you and he says, hey, this is just who you are. You're just a filthy, rotten sinner. So this is, you might as well just do what you want to do because this is who you are. No, that's not who you are. You're a child of God. You belong to Jesus. He lies to you outright. He's really, really good at making a lie sound like the truth. That's his second tool, but his third tool in tempting us is doubts. 
Doubt specifically about God's heart and intentions. Look at verse 5. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the big thing here is the enemy makes you feel like God's holding out on you, right? Like, he drops thoughts in your head of like, if you weren't a Christian, you could have so much fun. You would be so free. He says, You're, you, you could be really happy, but God doesn't want you to be really happy. If only you had this, you would be so happy. Your life would be so complete. It would be so fulfilled. Here's the deal, Life Church. None of us sin out of duty. I've never met anybody that says, ah, I better wake up today and just go ruin my marriage with an affair. You know, I've never met a single person say, I'm going to go embezzle a bunch of money and destroy my career. No, we sin because sin promises us something. It promises a life that we think we don't have. It, it dangles that carrot out in front of us. But the truth is, all the devil can offer us is the counterfeit good. Um, there's going to be a lot of quotes from screw tape letters. I know, of course, students, I'm using C.S. Lewis again. But it, you'll, you'll like this, Eden especially. And she's like, here he goes on his C.S. Lewis rant. The screw Tape Letters is one of my favorite books, and I try to read it a little bit every year because it gives us a window into the tempter and how he works on us and all the subtleties. And C.S. Lewis writes it from the perspective of a senior devil tempter to his junior um, demon tempter, Wormwood. And he says this, I know we've taken many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. So it's important to realize this. Like, saying no to temptation is not just whatever you do, say no to all the good things. It's actually learning to say yes to the real pleasures, to the good things of God. Because God is the one who invented all the pleasures in the first place. He knows where they're really going to be used best. Of course, students are studying this right now as we go through um, the catechism on marriage and sexuality, that God really does know what's best for us in this area. And Uncle Screwtape acknowledges this to Wormwood in chapter 2, where he says, speaking of God, he's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Satan wants you to believe that you're missing out. He wants you to feel like the kid on the outside of the playground, right? Looking in. If you could only be there, then you would finally be fulfilled. Then you would finally be happy. Then your life would finally have some joy. And once he finally gets you to take a bite, he has a plan for you. And the plan is this. As Screwtape says, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Have you ever found that to be true? When you bite into the enemy's lure, he gives you an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. It's actually been proven that's what happens with drug addictions and porn addictions. You get an ever-increasing craving for that thing, and your pleasure diminishes. So you need more and more and more of that substance to give you that same high. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to lead you to nothing but slavery and death. So Satan promised something to Adam and Eve that day in the garden. He promised them that they could be like God. Now, here's the crazy part. They already were. They were made in God's likeness, in his very image. They were as close to being like God as they would ever be. And after they sinned, they became progressively less and less and less like God, constantly battling to find their way back 
to the image bearers that God had made them to be. They wanted to be their own gods, which leads us to the third point, the tumble. Eve takes the fruit and gives some to Adam. They sin, and immediately they realize they're naked, so shame enters the world. And this is important for you to know as well, that on the front side, the enemy is going to be your deceiver. He's going to be your tempter. But after you take a bite, he's going to become quickly your accuser. Revelation 12.10 says, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. So he comes to you and says, you are so stupid. I can't believe you did that. And you call yourself a Christian? I don't know how you're going to show your face in church. You should definitely not go to your D group or your life group, right? What you need to do now, because you're such a miserable piece of crap, is you should just go and fix yourself all alone. That's what he'll tell you. Like, you just need to go handle this on your own. And that's his goal for you. His work is complete when he watches you running from God. Look at Adam and Eve here. They're hiding, they're covering, running from the one who loves them so dearly. So that's the enemy's goal for you is to be separated from God, far, far away from the source of life. Screwtape says to Wormwood in chapter 12 of his letters, he says, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That's Satan's goal for your life. And he'll use whatever he needs to move your way. He's happy to do it quickly, and he's happy to be very, very patient. He's happy to use the big uh, headline-getting sins, and he's happy to use small little stuff like greed and, and just selfishness and bad habits over and over and over again, as long as it moves you away from your source of life. He's trying daily to tempt you, trick you, and dole your senses to God. He wants distance between the two of you. So you say, okay, Pastor Dave, I get it. Uh, The enemy has been tempting me. I've fallen. I've bit into his lures too many times, more times than I'd like to admit. I've got more hooks in my mouth than I'd like to admit. How do I get free? Where's the the path to to freedom from sin and from temptation? Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, you're never going to find freedom from temptation. You're never going to be like, oh, I'm just no longer tempted by anything. And maybe that starts to bring you a little bit of freedom in itself because I know a lot of Christians that carry a lot of guilt about the fact that they're tempted by things. You ever feel like that? Like, oh, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be tempted by that. Whoever said that? Jesus himself was tempted. Get free from that. The big idea is that you don't give in to the temptation, that you know how to handle it. And that's what we're going to look at in point number four. You don't have to bite into the lures of the enemy. You can triumph over temptation. In our gospel text, if you didn't read it, it's, um, it's the text about that Christina mentioned, Jesus in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and being tempted. And then our epistle is Romans 5 this week. And they tell us the secret of triumphing over temptation and sin. And the secret is all about running to the one who was tempted in every way we are, but never, never once gave in. Never once did he stumble at all. See, friends, our text from Romans 5 today makes it clear that there's not just one Adam in the Bible, but two. There's a first Adam, and then there's a second Adam. And you see, the first Adam, he was tempted in the garden and fell, while the second Adam 
was tempted 40 days in the wilderness and held. The first Adam, through the first Adam came death through sin, while through the second Adam came life and atonement for sin. The first Adam brought us condemnation, while the second Adam brings us justification. The first Adam, remember, he sinned at a tree, while the second Adam atoned for sin on a tree. The first Adam brought about thorns and a curse, while the second Adam wore a crown of thorns and removed the curse. The first Adam was naked and ashamed, while the second Adam was stripped naked and bore our shame. The first Adam doubted God, while the second Adam trusted God. The first Adam brought destruction, while the second Adam brought restoration. The first Adam, he ran from God in the garden, while the second Adam ran to God in the garden. The first Adam was deceived by the snake, while the second Adam crushed the head of that snake. See, friends, Jesus is the second Adam. He's the one who's triumphed over temptation, and therefore he's the only place that we can run if we hope to follow in his footsteps, if we hope to overcome as well. It's kind of like this. If you're about to take on a big challenge, Olivia's battling cancer, going through chemo, if you're going to run a marathon, if you're going to um, try to get through med school, some big challenge that you're facing, who do you want to talk to before you get into that challenge? You want to talk to somebody who's done it. You want to talk to somebody who's gone through that and succeeded, right? Well, Jesus is the only human being who's ever lived and been tempted like we are and never gave in once. He never gave in once. He never bit into a single lure. He conquered temptation in his perfect life. He died the death that was meant for us, and he rose again from the dead on the third day to conquer not just the consequences of sin— but to conquer the power over it, to, the, to conquer the power of it for you and I, for us. It's kind of like if you're playing a video game. I'm not a video gamer, but I remember trying to when I was a kid. And you can't pass a certain level. You know, Mario Brothers, you can't get past the Koopa or whatever. And you know your friend can. So you say, hey, you want to just take the controls and use my profile and get past them for me? And they're like, sure. And they do it. That's what you need. You need somebody to take the controls, to come into your life who has that power, and that is the power of the indwelling Christ. That's exactly what has happened. When you're a Christian, you have the power of the indwelling Christ who defeated Satan. You still have to be wary of his schemes. He's still going to tempt you. You're not infallible. You can still fall, but you need not fear his power because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You can have victory over temptation because our great hero, Jesus Christ, has won the battle for you. And maybe the best part is that he also gets it. You know, just like the Super Bowl ad said, Jesus gets us. It's not just a cool slogan. He really does understand. He really did become human. So he's not looking down on you in shame like, you've got to be kidding me. You're tempted by that? He's like, no, I get it. I felt that. That's powerful, isn't it? I, yeah, I understand. Come to me. I can help you with that. That's his posture towards you. So I don't know where this message finds you today. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you're recognizing like, yeah, Pastor Dave, I'm not necessarily fighting like maybe the rest of you are, but I recognize that the enemy is bringing death and destruction into my life. And you're right. He's not just trying to destroy Christians and tempt them. He's trying to bring death and destruction into every human life because God loves humans so much. So I'd urge you today, run to Jesus who can forgive you of your sin and give you power over it. But for the rest of us today, I want to encourage you with one final thought. Like I said in the intro, today's supposed to be encouraging. 
lots of sermons on temptation are not, you know, encouraging, and they're more, you know, you can feel worse and more shame after you leave. I want to encourage you. This is one quote from C.S. Lewis. I had never read this before this week. I got to share it with you. He says this, no man knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. You understand that? A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. (laughs) We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. So maybe you're sitting there, you're saying, yeah, Pastor Dave, I have felt that way. I have felt guilty for all the temptations that I face. And Lewis is saying the exact opposite. You're actually trying. You're actually fighting. You're not living a sheltered life by always giving in. So if you find yourself fighting, embroiled in this battle against temptation, that just means you're fighting. Keep fighting in the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep running to Jesus saying, help me with this. Help me with this. You, you went 40 days and tempted in the wilderness when you hadn't eaten anything. How did you do it? Help me. That's the big idea here, friends. He can help you. Don't give up. Don't quit. doesn't mean you're a bad person because you're being tempted. And here's the final thought. Before you were a Christian, you were fighting a battle with sin that you could not win. But now, because you're on Team Jesus, you're fighting a battle you cannot lose. Let's run to him again today. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for your for all that you've done in coming to earth, all that you gave up, all that you fasted, all that you let go of, so that you could give us the home that we've always longed for. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, like you, to overcome temptation. We want to live holy lives. We want to be pleasing to you. We want to be set apart. But we're weak. Would you fill us with your spirit fresh and new again today? We need your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.